sexual attraction is kind of a double-edged sword. There's being attracted, seeing someone and wanting to get into their pants, and then there is attracting someone. The act of dancing, collecting shiny objects, puffing up your feathers, and making insane noises. Humans, animals, insects, anything that lives has a basic internal drive to mate. The real meaning of life is to continue living. Keep the species going. You can't do that unless you're reproducing. And not just anyone gets to pass their genes along. It's got to be the best of the best. Today we're going to go over the history of attraction, how our tastes have changed, and what could have caused that change. We're going to talk about some of the weird tactics animals have used to attract potential mates, from building intricate structures to perfectly choreographed dancing. We're going to talk about the psychology behind what attracts us as humans, and we will cover some of the people considered most attractive in history. This is a pretty big topic, so let's get to it. Let's get naked and talk about sexual attraction. Hello and welcome to Get Naked with Alex. I'm your host, Alex, and this is a show about sex and sexy things. You most definitely do not have to listen while naked, but it is certainly not frowned upon. Unless you're somewhere where clothes are required, then please don't be naked. What a weird world it would be if clothes were seriously not a thing. We wear them mostly as protection against weather, the sun, keeping things from getting inside our bodies. But then there's needing to be decent. What if we didn't have that modesty? I wonder about that from time to time, especially with the rise of movements like Free the Nipple. For those of you who don't know, there's a weird censorship issue with certain social media platforms where a man can post a topless photo, nipples included, but a woman can't. You can even find a bunch of pics people post to Instagram where a woman is clearly topless, but a man's nipple has been photoshopped over the woman's nipple, and that photo doesn't get taken down. It's silly as hell. The sight of a female nipple is not going to corrupt the youth and cause people to start acting like lunatics. Modesty and decency are pretty funny social constructs. I feel like nudity is fine overall. Just be decent about it. Don't try to put your balls in someone's face, unless they're into it, I guess. I feel the same about any body part, though. Don't put your feet or your hands or your face in my face. That's just weird. But who am I to stop someone from getting a little sun on their nuggets? Do you. Just don't be creepy about it. There's actually a lot of places in the U.S. that allow for full public nudity. In Seattle, for instance, they're relatively fine with it, as long as you are acting appropriately. They literally have a nudist cycling group that is known for showing up at all the city parades. As long as you're not being creepy, you're good. So let's start today's episode with some sex news. In a few southern states, laws are being proposed and passed called heartbeat laws. This basically states that an abortion cannot be performed if the fetus has a heartbeat. And the heartbeat is usually present at around six weeks in. And this is sometimes well before a woman even knows she's pregnant. Abortion is an incredibly tough subject to cover, and honestly, I don't think I'm prepared to get into it. And everyone has their own stance on the subject. Some people think that abortion is never okay. It's a living, growing human, and that is murder. Other people feel that there's a middle ground. It's okay to terminate a pregnancy if it was forced on by the woman, by rape or coercion, or if she can't survive the birth, or if the pregnancy was a product of incest. And then there's people who believe that the choice to abort a pregnancy falls entirely in the hands of the pregnant woman, and that woman alone, whatever her reasoning. I'm not afraid to say that I'm on the side of not having a say in whether a woman decides to get an abortion or not. It's not my body. It's not my place to judge her circumstances. But that's not what I want to talk about anyway. So these laws are big news, right? And recently, Alyssa Milano, a pretty famous actress, took to Twitter to protest the laws, asking women to join her in a sex strike. 
I found this a bit interesting. It turns out this is not the first time in history that a sex strike has come up. So there's a Greek comedy called Lysistrata, in which women go on a sex strike to persuade the men of Athens to end the war they are currently fighting. This play was written in 411 BC, and there isn't much evidence to say that this happened before in history, but it has definitely happened since. In the book Women, War, and Violence by authors Miriam and Lester Kurtz, they talk about the first official case of what is called lysistratic non-action. It occurs in the 1600s in a North American Iroquois tribe. The women became tired of the men making all the decisions when it came to waging war, so they choose to boycott sex and childbearing. This tribe believed that women held all the secrets to childbirth and freaked the fuck out because they were no longer having children. However, the women didn't only give up sex, they also stopped working. Women in these tribes would do almost all of the agriculture work, and when they no longer worked, the men no longer had the rations and supplies needed to even go to war. And it worked. The men relented and gave the women veto power when it came to waging wars. And this happens a lot in history. And it's always women withholding sex, with a mix of other non-violent tactics. But in this day and age, how well would that work? Is it the right way to go if you want to non-violently protest laws regarding female bodies? A lot of people have some important criticism when it comes to the sex strike. One main issue being that it kind of excludes everyone who isn't a heterosexual female. It's been said that this only applies to women who engage in sex with straight or cis men. But what about men who didn't vote for this and who feel the opposite? Are we just going to cut off those who would support this law in the first place? Is that really going to happen? There's a rather large group of females who support these laws as well. What can you do with that? And another concern is that this makes sex and women's bodies look like a commodity that can be bartered. I really thought the idea of a sex strike was interesting. What do you think about it? Do you think men could pull off the same strike? Or is this really something women could hold over men? It's worth thinking about, but that's current news. Before we dive into today's topic, I just want to thank everyone who gave the show a five-star review on the Apple Podcasts app. If you haven't yet, please consider showing us a little love and telling us how we're doing. It helps us work our way up the charts and reach more listeners, which is the whole point of this podcast. We have a whole world to help educate. And I want to thank the deviants over at patreon.com slash getnaked. You guys are buying Kitty her microphone so she can start recording her lovely self for the bonus episodes. Really, though, you guys rock. We would not be doing this if we didn't have people like you believing in what we're doing. Okay, enough cheese. Let's get to the meat, shall we? So what makes a person sexually appealing? Before we jump into the obvious, I want to shake things up a bit. Let's say that you're at a Halloween party. Everyone is in costumes, head to toe, but at some point in the night, you find yourself attracted to the left shark that showed up just before midnight. You've never met her before, but you keep chatting and you really find no interest in leaving the conversation. Next thing you know, you're flirting with a talking shark who is flirting back. You may be thinking, well, her voice is probably sexy, or you must be having a very interesting conversation about the stuff that you both enjoy. That would be the logical explanation, right? But what if it was something else? What if you could smell her, but you didn't really know it? What if somehow you could sense that she was ovulating? Up until pretty recently, scientists believed that human females showed no sign of fertility. Other females in the animal kingdom have many ways to show that they're ready to make a baby. Bonobos, chimpanzees, and other primates have genitals that swell drastically and become much more red than usual, making it visually obvious to nearby males. Some animals, like dogs, even bleed to show that they're ready to get pregnant, which is the opposite of humans, who bleed when they did not become pregnant. This has long been called hidden or concealed ovulation. Most beings in the world are pretty aware of when mating season is, but for humans, it was a lot harder to figure out. Then, in 2002, scientists started studying the small physical changes in a woman during different times in her menstrual cycle. Turns out that bloated feeling might have something to do with your body slightly rearranging your fat. Females do swell in some areas, 
but almost unnoticeably. Breasts swell, skin color changes, vocal pitches change, and you guessed it, there's a change in scent. Most of this is almost entirely invisible to those not specifically looking for it, but it's there. There's even a study that looked at how the ovulation cycle would affect tips that professional lap dancers received, and there was an actual increase when they were ovulating. This wasn't tested in a lab, though, so it's not perfect science, but it's a pretty interesting find, and it turns out other women can sense these changes in females without really knowing it. Women who are ovulating have reported feeling more attractive and more social overall than at other times during their cycles, and this brings up a really fun theory I found doing research for today's episode. It's called the ovulatory shift hypothesis. It basically theorizes that women want different things, act differently, and are attracted to different things during different parts of their ovulatory cycle. When they are most fertile, they become more flirty, they will become competitive with other females, and can experience less satisfaction with their current romantic partners, or just become more sexual overall. Again, it's just a theory for now, but it's very possible. So without even knowing it, there are things affecting what we find sexually attractive. These are things that have probably existed for as long as humans have. They are basic ancestral instincts. But society and culture has had its own hand in shaping what we think is sexually appealing. Beauty standards have been drastically different over time and distance. Chinese foot binding, for instance, was considered a status symbol as well as a mark of beauty, but this practice only occurred in China. Small feet were widely sought after well before foot binding became a thing. It was considered feminine and delicate and therefore beautiful. Eventually, it became apparent that feet could only be so small, so women began binding their feet up in an effort to appear more womanly and more beautiful. This shit was obviously painful and incredibly damaging. And though foot binding is no longer practiced, there are still older women who have bound feet from an earlier time. And not everyone was quick to jump to such self-mutilation. In certain subcultures and regions in China, the feet were temporarily bound or just wrapped tightly to appear thinner. Some regions even created platform shoes that forced the wearer to walk with a similar sway to that of a woman with bound feet. The way that some women walked with their new painfully wrapped up feet was even seen as beautiful and delicate. This was not the only form of binding things to change their shape in the name of being more attractive. Well before written history, pretty much all over the world, you can find skulls that have been elongated or flattened. Depending on where you find the skulls, they have slightly different shapes. And to be fair, this wasn't just for beauty standards. This was just something that certain cultures did for any random reason. Basically, about a month after the baby is born, their head is wrapped between boards, squishing it upwards. Baby's skulls are still not fully formed after birth, so the bone is a little more squishy. That's why they do it so young. And it only goes on for about six months, and then the head is left however it is, usually much longer than what it would normally be. Though one tribe did use a technique that made the heads extremely round. Something you can still find in current times is the use of neck rings. In a few African and Asian cultures, women would place stiff metal rings around their necks, attempting to either create the illusion of an elongated neck or in some more serious cases, actually stretching the neck. This is almost entirely done by women in an attempt to be more beautiful. Longer necks are sought after and considered extremely attractive in these cultures, as well as signs of social status. This can also cause serious health issues, though. In fact, this practice can actually result in death. So the rings are put on young girls around puberty, and more rings are added over time. They're meant to be permanent, After some time, the neck muscles become basically useless, and with the tissues between the vertebrae stretched out, if the rings are improperly removed, or in some cases removed at all, the neck will just collapse and the person will suffocate. And who could forget the corset? This baby has been around since the 1550s and is the most common, widely used garment that is worn purely for the purpose of modifying your body in an effort to become more attractive. The main goal here is that it slims your waist. 
Both women and men in history have worn corsets for this, but it has become a primarily feminine piece of wardrobe. For women, it has the added benefit of supporting your breasts and making your butt look bigger. For some, this is a temporary shaper. For others, they wanted a more permanent change. Certain corsets and waist cinchers were created solely for the purpose of adjusting a person's actual waistline, pushing in the lower ribs and moving the inner organs around. And waist cinchers are still a thing in current times, made recently popular by the Kardashians. Corsets were all the rage in Victorian times. It was extremely, it was an extremely common item, and it is even partially to blame for the invention of something called fainting couches. Fainting couches, though most widely used in home treatments of hysteria at the time, also had a reputation for being there to catch a woman who was too tightly bound in her corset and couldn't breathe. Another example you may not have realized that is all looks over utility, the high heel. I'm not just talking stilettos and stripper pumps. High heels in general have been used for many reasons throughout history, from keeping your foot in a stirrup on your horse, to keeping you elevated out of the gross, excrement-filled streets in medieval times. These have also been worn by both men and women in an effort to look more attractive. They make your legs look longer, and you appear taller. In cultures where height mattered, you'll see high heels show up to help the short people out, and they are still in use today, obviously. So, if you don't want to bind your body in one form or another, what other methods could you use to become more appealing? Well, let's start with taming all that body hair. Back in ancient Mesopotamia, it's speculated that they created the first real hairstyles. Men seemed to pay a lot of attention to how their hair, both on their head and the face, was groomed. They did embrace the beard, though. In ancient Egypt, you can find writings that claim that the less body hair you have, man or woman, the more attractive you are. Actually, Egypt appears to be the first truly appearance-obsessive culture. They created perfumes, makeup, skin treatments, all in an effort to be more beautiful. Ancient Greece felt similarly to the people of Mesopotamia in that beards were great. They were considered a sign of maturity and wisdom, and when a man experienced any kind of grief, it was common for that man to cut off his beard and hang it from his door as a reminder of that loss. And the women of Greece had a few options. Whether fully clean or just trimmed down, women were rarely depicted with pubic hair. In fact, you can find evidence of young girls pulling their pubes out as soon as they started growing in. It was more beautiful to be hairless. It should be mentioned that Greeks really liked their women plump, by the way. Aphrodite, the goddess of beauty and love, is depicted in art at the time with chubby arms, rolls in her tummy area, and thick thighs. She looks curvy and womanly. Later down the line, during the European Renaissance, the women get even larger. It isn't so much in a way to be more sexually appealing, though. It's meant to show off your husband's or your family's wealth. You could afford to eat more. This was considered the ideal look for women at the time. In the Victorian era, along with corsets and large hair, you come across the real obsession with pale skin. Both men and women would paint their faces to look lighter, whiter, in an effort to look more beautiful and more rich. See, if you were rich, you didn't need to work. You never needed to go into the sun, and therefore you ended up looking like a vampire. People went to incredible lengths to look lighter. Insert putting crazy poisonous shit on your face for beauty. Many of you may know arsenic as literally poison, and it is. If applied to the skin, it would constrict blood vessels, leaching the skin of any redness or pinkness, making you look as pale as fuck. And if used often enough, arsenic becomes addictive, and it's pretty much necessary to use after a certain amount of time. And it's not like these women didn't know it was poisonous. You can find case after case of women murdering other people with arsenic. In certain times in history, you could even find mercury, lead, and high amounts of radiation in beauty products. It's worth noting that skin lightening has been used for other reasons. Between the 15th and 19th century, slaves who had darker skin were found to be treated more harshly when compared to lighter-toned slaves. This caused many slaves to take up the act of trying to bleach their skin to lighter shades. It's a sad fact, but it's worth mentioning here. And though having paler skin has been sought after for many, many years, 
we do have times when being darker has been considered more attractive. Tanning was such a big deal in recent times that health warnings had to be issued to the public about overexposure. You can still get spray tans to this day in an effort to look like you live at the beach. It's also worth noting that pale men have rarely been seen as attractive in history. It does exist, it's just rare. In fact, tanned, darker-toned men have been seen as more attractive in a lot of different cultures and times in history. Think of the stereotype of the tall, dark, and handsome man. While we're on the subject of skin lightening, I want to point out that there's a lot of racial issues when it comes to skin tones being attractive or not being attractive. The standard for beauty between races is something that doesn't deserve to be lightly touched upon here, and will definitely be covered later. But it's worth bringing up that there are huge issues for men and women alike when it comes to race. To this day, we use makeup and skin treatments to appear more appealing. And it would take me hours to go over how makeup techniques have evolved over time. It's changed in my lifetime, drastically. I remember when bright, loud colors painted on your eyelids was considered beautiful, and now the more natural look is the thing to do. The same can be said about clothing styles. There are way too many changes to go through all of them. But this is what people do to attract others. We paint our faces, we get tans, we make ourselves look more pale, we bleach or dye our hair, we tweeze our eyebrows and then we draw them back on. We put so much effort into attracting a mate. But do we put in the most effort? Animals have a pretty tough time trying to appeal to the opposite sex sometimes. The mating dances that some birds pull off are fucking breathtaking. Other times you just have to laugh. For blue-footed boobies, a bird with blue feet, no surprise there, the sex appeal comes in the color blue. Females are attracted to more pigmented feet. It signals that the male is good at finding food. The males try to show off their feet by doing weird high-step dances, which also include wing flapping for extra points. Centaurs, which are very real but have gone extinct due to suicidal orgasms, used to attract members of the opposite sex by making sounds similar to a deflating balloon. Those who had the larger lung capacity, therefore being able to squeal longer, were considered more beautiful and sexually attractive. It's widely accepted that this is because centaurs were avid divers. Sloths, those cute-ass animals, employ a less choreographed way to attract potential partners as well. When a female sloth goes into heat, she just starts fucking screaming. It may take a lot of time for a male to show up, and if multiple males show up, they can fight over the female's attention, but she just screams. I found this absolutely amazing. Peacocks are famous for their bright, large plumes of feathers. The males will flaunt them off to females in an attempt to get her attention or to fight off other males. This is exactly where the term peacocking comes from. I also learned that female peacocks are called peahens, and that the babies are called peachicks, and that's the cutest thing in the world to be right now. Peachicks. In another absolutely adorable tale, some species of penguin gift what is called the perfect pebble to their mates. The penguins that do this are known to pick one mate and stick with that mate for the rest of their lives, but finding the perfect pebble comes first. The male will search for hours and will fight off other males to secure his little rock. I love this. All types of deer that produce antlers use them as a way to attract mates. The female deer are more attracted to larger antlers. And then you have bowerbirds. They do not gift anything, nor do they grow any attractive features. They build. Male bowerbirds will construct little structures, called bowers, out of twigs and sticks and decorate the outsides with colorful trash, shells, and debris. These birds are smart as fuck, too. They have been known to use architectural illusions to make the bower appear more inviting to a female bird. For example, they will place larger sticks at the entrance to make the structure appear deeper than it actually is. These birds will also organize the decorations they find in piles by color, or they will seek out objects of one particular color. This can be extremely time-consuming, but it looks so interesting when it's completed. And all he has to do is lure a female in, and if she likes it enough, she'll make herself at home for a couple seconds and allow the male to mate with her. 
Spiders tend to like to dance a lot when it comes to attracting mates. You can find some pretty adorable videos of jumping spiders waving their front legs around like arms. And apparently, brown recluse spiders dance and jump in an effort to look more appealing too. Spiders and other insects have also been known to give gifts, victims wrapped in webs. In most species of animals and insect, the males tend to be more colorful than the females. It's the male's job to attract the female, so evolution gave them something to work with. Humans seem to be doing a little bit of the opposite. Sex is literally the biggest deal on the planet, so sex appeal is right up there too. And this world has seen its fair share of sex symbols. The term sex symbol is a more modern term, but there have always been people in history who have been known for being beautiful, attractive, or sexy. We talked about Helen of Troy last week, and she's a pretty famous example. In Egypt, around 1350 BC, the queen Nefertiti ruled with her husband, Akhenaten. Her name translates to, the beautiful woman has come. She is depicted constantly with a perfectly symmetrical face, which has always been a symbol of beauty for the most part. In China, they have the four most handsome men and the four beauties, all so beautiful that crazy shit happened around them for no reason. It should be noted that though some of these people did exist, their lives have become legend, and therefore a lot of the details of their lives have been very much embellished. But their stories include a prince who was killed by a jealous family member, a man who was so beautiful and also so fragile that he was watched to death, the four women were given names to describe how beautiful they were, one so beautiful that fish forgot how to swim and would sink, one so beautiful that her face would cause birds in flight to fall from the sky, one that was so beautiful that the moon hid away in embarrassment, and one so beautiful that her face put all the flowers to shame. There is a woman named Rahib that, in certain religious texts, is described as one of the most beautiful women in the world. She's also a prostitute. She may or may not have been a real person, but this can be said about a lot of people. In other mythology, there's Narcissus. Narcissus was a man, so beautiful and so full of himself, that he falls in love with his own reflection and dies by being burned up by the passion that builds up inside of him, for himself. And that's where we get the term narcissism in modern psychology. In the 1840s in Berlin, a composer by the name Franz Liszt became so wildly popular that people of the time had coined the term Litzomania or Litz fever to describe the hysteria that his female fans would explode into during his concerts. This is a much more common occurrence now for fans to go nuts for their favorite superstars, but at this time in the world, nothing like this had ever been seen. He was considered a brilliant composer and an extremely handsome man for his time. And maybe you've heard of Rasputin, Russia's greatest love machine? Though he doesn't seem all that attractive in photos, he had to have something going for him. He's known for being incredibly sought after sexually by fucktons of women in Russia in the early 1900s. Just a little bit earlier in the 1890s, an artist named Charles Dana Gibson created what became known as the Gibson Girl. These girls were considered the ideal image of beauty in America at the time. In every illustration, the woman has soft facial expressions, almost sleepy eyes, big floppy looking hair, usually tall with a slim waist. And they were given personalities as well. They were thought to be sexually confident, but modest, able to keep up with men intellectually, but having no interest in politics or the rise of women's suffrage movements. Marilyn Monroe is probably one of the most famous sex symbols. She's considered a symbol of beauty, even in a world that loves their super thin underwear models. And we have tons of sex symbols now. Seriously, there's a Wikipedia page that lists sex symbols throughout the last century or so, and each decade the list gets larger and larger. One thing to note about the most recent list is that there's a wide variety of people that have been considered sex symbols. Chelsea Clinton, for instance, former President Bill Clinton and Hillary Clinton's only daughter, Hugh Laurie of Fry and Laurie fame, or if you happen to watch the show House, Hugh Laurie played the show's main character, Dr. House. There's a lot of professional athletes on the list as well, not just celebrities. 
Our sexual attraction changes over time, and there's always someone looking for something. The search terms for big ass and big tits have risen in popularity. Plus-size models are considered some of the most beautiful women in the world right now, while dad bods are on the rise as a sought-after male physique. But men all over the globe are still getting pectoral implants in an effort to look more buff. Women's eyebrows are getting larger and fuller, where in the 1920s, all the sex symbols had the thinnest possible brows. And tattoos and piercings have never been more sought after. In 2018, the term tattooed women saw an 88% increase in searches on Pornhub. We like our ladies painted, apparently. And if you're tired of me constantly bringing up Pornhub and Pornhub statistics, I regret to inform you that I probably won't stop. They are an amazing company. Did you guys see their bisexual porn promotions? I never would have thought that Pornhub would be out here trying to save the world, but they're doing their best, and they're fucking superheroes. And speaking of superheroes, I want to introduce you guys to this week's sexuality superhero. It's your next-door neighbor, Cindy. Cindy, just last week, held a gangbang at her house, assisting in the orgasms of at least 23 men and 4 women in a short 9-hour period, and she didn't ask anyone to help her clean up after. She really is a superstar. We need more people like her in the world, people who are not afraid to ask for what they want, and people who have no shame in what makes them feel good, and people who disinfect their anal hooks before putting them away. Okay, random PSA. Please, if you use any kind of toy, clean it after every single use. It is way too easy to get infections, and it's cheaper to clean your toys than to treat whatever infection you end up with as a result of being too lazy after a nice orgasm to clean your shit up. No, this week's real sexuality superhero is a woman named Andrea Barica. Andrea grew up with Filipino Catholic parents and admitted that her family never talked about sex. When she was younger, sex was taught to be shameful if it wasn't with your husband or your wife. As she grew up, she began to question her parents, like we all do, and sought out other education. She battled with a lot of her own inner struggles as well. Homosexuality was not accepted in her household, but as it turns out, she's queer, and this caused a lot of shame in her young adult life. But after seeking out a better understanding of sex in general, she eventually learned to drop the shame and has really taken her experiences and used them for good. Andrea Barica founded something called O-School, a place meant to be a judgment-free zone to ask questions about sex and sexuality. She believes that sexuality is important for being a healthy human being and that suppressing our sexuality is nothing but damaging. She has given talks and sat on panels for discussions in 12 different countries and continues to work to improve the way the world views sex and aims to help educate the world. I want to meet her one day. I really adore people who grow out of tough experiences and dedicate their lives to helping other people grow out of their experiences. So if you have time this week, visit www.o.school and watch a few of the many sex ed videos on that site. One of the trending search terms on the site right now is butts. Maybe go see what all that fuss is about. Part of learning to be comfortable with yourself and your sexuality involves being happy with who you're attracted to. I mentioned earlier that tastes change. I'm so curious what sort of craze might happen in the future. Will we dye our skin shades of blue? Will bald heads on men and women alike be sought after? Will we look for much more aged faces as inspiration for beauty, seeking out wrinkles and freckles? I'm not going to lie, I'd be totally happy with the bluish shades of skin, only because blue is literally the best color. You cannot change my mind. Something I found when doing research for today's episode was that people have pretty much always been attracted to symmetry. It's scientifically proven that people find symmetrical faces more attractive, but it's not like we're out there with rulers and shit. So, it has been scientifically proven that Shania Twain's face is that of total beauty. She has literally been proven to have one of the most symmetrical faces on the planet. I don't think she's my type, I guess, but I found it super cool that she's actually been called out by scientists for having an almost perfectly symmetrical face. As for this week's question... 
I want to know some of the crazy shit you guys have done to appear more attractive to those around you. For example, when I was in the fifth grade, I stuffed my bra. I mean, I was a kid, but I understood that people liked boobs. I liked boobs. And I didn't really have any at the time. Mind you, in the fifth grade, I had a boy short haircut and was constantly asked by other parents if I was a boy or a girl. And to put a cherry on top of this mess, my hair was curly. So short, unruly, curly hair was a huge part of how other kids saw me, and it was not very pleasant. But what sorts of things have you guys done? I'll try to think of any other times I did stupid shit in order to seem more appealing. But if you want to submit your story, email me at getnaked.alix, A-L-I-X, at gmail.com. Or message me on whatever social media platform you prefer. I'm on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, or just join the Discord channel. We have a whole channel dedicated to answering the question of the week. I'm curious what stories I'm going to get. This should be a fun one. And I want to thank everyone who is in the Discord chat. Holy hell has the chat been on fire lately. Not only have we been getting a lot of new members, but they're all fucking badasses. And the chat has been getting really steamy lately, both in the public and the deviant chats. It's really cool to see so much body positivity, confidence, and just plain fun flooding the chats. And for those of you who are deviants, you guys are literally the coolest human beings. Thank you for believing in what we're doing. If you too want to help support the show, head over to patreon.com getnaked and sign yourself up. You don't have to put in $5 a month to gain the title of a true deviant, but that tier does come with some cool rewards, including access to the hidden sexy Discord channels, which, did I mention, have been lit lately? Thank you again to my beautiful research assistant and the instigator of all things hot and heavy in the Discord channel. Well, at least most of the things. Kitty, you rock. Thank you for agreeing to go on this journey with me. I didn't want to have to drag you along against your will, so this helps. Before we officially close this week's episode out, I want to try and answer the same two questions I aim to answer at the end of every show. What did we learn? Well, we learned that people in history have gone to extremely painful lengths to appear more attractive to those around them. We learned that beauty and appeal are flippant, tastes change way too frequently for there to be any set standard, but we also learned that blue hair is by far the most attractive hair color on the planet. The sight alone took out quite a few centaurs back in the olden days. How does this affect us in our day-to-day lives? Well, hopefully you don't judge other people's preferences too harshly. What may not be attractive to you now was literally worshipped in other cultures. Everyone deserves to feel beautiful, and everyone is. You, no matter what you look like, are someone's image of perfection. Missing arms or legs? There are people that would love to wake up to that every day. Are you extra, extra large? That just means more to love for a lot of people and is very much sought after. Don't have blue hair? That's okay. That's nothing a box of hair dye can't fix. I'm kidding, of course. You're all fucking beautiful, so act like it. Be confident, be sexy. But above all, be smart and be safe. And as always, until next time, happy humping. I'm so sorry that this episode is so late. My cats decided to have a crazy ass fight in the middle of my recording. <laughs>